Um, listen, if you are new here today and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Will and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at our church. And uh, this morning we are continuing our series through the letter of Galatians. And our passage today comes to us from Galatians chapter 3. And we are going to be looking at verse 23 all the way through Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to the last part of Galatians 3. And then we will jump into verse 7. And if you are able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. Paul writes, verse 23. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive. Everyone say captive. captive. Under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, everyone say guardian, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you uh, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, everyone say redeem, redeem. those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this morning, and God, we are grateful for uh, the baptism that we were able to celebrate this morning. God, I pray that it would result in many more people taking that step of obedience, taking that public step of obedience. And like Ryan said, we know that the water doesn't save us, but it is a, uh, 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 an embodiment, a picture of what you did for us and us being united with you in your crucifixion and in your burial and in your resurrection and in your ascension. And so thank you, Lord, that for those who have been baptized into Christ, we can then be baptized publicly in light of that spiritual reality. And so, Father, I pray uh, now as we step into this passage that you would please lead us, that you would please guide us. God, we are grateful for what you're doing and how you're working. And Father, we ask in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit that you would please, Lord, lead this time and guide it. God, I'm excited about this passage. There's so much gospel in this text. And so I pray, Father, that you would right now uh, enable me and allow me, Lord, to hide behind the cross so that, and behind your word and behind your work, so that as we work through this, it's not me speaking, but it's you speaking through me. And uh, God, I know that your word and your work are sufficient. And I know that I am insufficient. So I pray that you would move me out of the way, that I would decrease so that you might increase this morning. So lead us, Lord, guide us, Lord. And I pray that this would be a, a message that evangelizes those who are lost here this morning and edifies those who are found. So lead us, we pray. 
We ask it and we beg it. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Now, in this passage, Galatians 3.23 through Galatians 4.7, I would argue that there are two lessons that we learn. The Apostle Paul is continuing his argument from the previous section. And what he's doing here is, again, he is comparing and he's contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. He's comparing and he's contrasting the performance mindset of the Judaizers with the promise mindset of the apostles. He is comparing and he's contrasting the do gospel with the done gospel. And so in light of that, here's what I would argue. In this text, there are two lessons that we learn, two truths. The first lesson, the first truth that we learn is that the law prepares. The law prepares. And I would argue that in this text, the law prepares us in three, three ways. There are three roles that the law plays in the life of God's people in general and a believer in particular. There are three roles. So as the law prepares us, the first role that the law plays is the law is our jailer. The law is our jailer. And, and look what it says here in verse 23. It says, now before faith came, we were held captive. Everyone say captive. Under the law imprisoned, everyone say imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, the word there, captive, it literally means to be under watch, similar to what Paul had to deal with when he was on house arrest in Rome. It means to be under watch. It means to be under military guard. It means to be held prisoner. And in the word there, imprisoned, it means to restrict someone. It means to trap someone. And the Greek word there actually uh, carries the idea of fish being caught in a net. So, so the first thing that Paul tells us is that the law, it shows up and the law is our jailer. That is the first role that the law plays in the life of a believer. And the reason why that shouldn't surprise us is because that's what we talked about last week. At the end of the passage last week, we saw that Paul says the law has imprisoned everyone under sin. That the law is what makes us transgressors, right? That apart from the law, there is lawlessness. There is no law yet. And when the law is given, all of a sudden, Paul says in Romans 7, that he was struggling with coveting and didn't even know that he was struggling with coveting. But he said when the law showed up and the law revealed to him that he was a coveter, he said the law made him a transgressor. That, that many times when we talk about sin, we talk about missing the mark and that's part of it. We talk about falling short of the glory of God and that's part of it. But what Paul says is that one of the roles and functions of the law is that the law shows up to make us transgressors. And that Greek word there for transgressors means to overstep a boundary. So before the law was given, we didn't know what God's boundaries were. But then when the law was introduced in the book of Exodus, all of a sudden we were aware of what God's boundaries were. And so uh, uh, to transgress means to overstep a boundary that has been previously established. And so what Paul wants us to know here is that every single person before coming to Jesus, so if you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, the law is still your jailer. You are imprisoned under the law. You are under the jurisdiction and you are under the judgment 
of the law. But, but here's what's very important, and I think we need to wrestle with this. What that means is, is that the law this morning, if the law is your jailer, then what it means is the law is not your savior. The law is not your deliverer. The law is not your redeemer. And so if you're here this morning and you are considering Christianity and you think I'm going to show up to church and I'm going to get my act together and I'm going to check off the right boxes and I'm going to put money in the bucket and I'm going to start doing the religious thing, that is not redemption, that is religion. You are trying to go to the law and you are expecting the law to do what only the Lord can do. You are expecting the law to do what only grace can do. You are expecting religion to do what only redemption can do. The law is not your deliverer. The law is not your redeemer. The law is not your savior. The law is your jailer. The law imprisons you. It puts you into captivity. That is what Paul is saying here in this passage. And so what I love about the law is that if we have a proper relationship with the law, the law puts us in temporary bondage so that we might experience permanent freedom. That's what the law does. The law shows up and in God's sovereign plan, he introduced the law in the book of Exodus so that we might, be, we might be aware of the fact we were already in captivity. We just didn't know yet. The law showed up, confirmed our captivity, showed us that we weren't just sinners who missed the mark, but transgressors who overstepped our boundaries. And it put us in a prison cell under sin. Now, here's why this doctrine is so important. And we're, we're, re, we're going back to it because Paul brings it up again in this text. What this does is it flies in the face of a very dangerous heresy that's been taught throughout church history. By God's grace, it hasn't been a prominent heresy, but it's, it's still there. And it's called the ransom theory. And here's what the ransom theory teaches. The ransom theory teaches that ever since Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have, quote, unquote, are property of Satan. They belong to Satan. And because they are property of Satan, because they belong to Satan, when Jesus showed up, the ransom that Jesus paid was to Satan in order to get us back. But church, that is not what the Bible teaches. Yes, we're, we're, called, we're told that we are under the power of Satan because he is the prince of the power of the air if we're born into this world. But we are not property of Satan. We do not belong to Satan. When Jesus showed up to die in our, in our place, it wasn't to pay the, make the payment. It wasn't like Satan had us imprisoned and he's like, okay, you got to give me this much money. And they, they, they were haggling on the price. No, no, no. The, if there was a debt owed, that debt was owed to the Father, right. not to Satan. Right. Let's not give Satan more credit than he deserves. Satan is a created being. And so there's this, this heresy that has crept into the church where, where Satan and God are equal and, and it's good versus evil. And, and there's days where Satan has the leg up and there's days where God has the leg up. No, no, no. God is a creator and Satan is part of creation. Satan is a dog on a leash and the person holding the leash is God. And just like God was there when Satan fell from, uh, from heaven like lightning, Jesus says that he was there, Jesus will also be there when Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire. And so let's not fall into this ransom theory. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know if I was going to say this, but I feel like the Lord's leading me to say, but there's this church, big church. It's in, uh, uh, let's just say it's in the state of Oklahoma. All right, we're going to keep it general. But they just did, uh, there's a false teacher that teaches there. And during Easter, they did this big play. And the name of the play was called Ransom. And it was this blasphemous, heretical, horrible play, right? But one of the things that they taught 
without even realizing it, was the ransom theory, that, that we were held captive by Satan and Jesus had to show up and he had to pay the price to get us back. No, he didn't, church. No, he didn't. Jesus didn't come to pay anything to Satan. Jesus came to defeat Satan and to put him uh, to public humiliation, it says in Colossians, and to one day throw him into the lake of fire, it says in Revelations. This is why theology matters, church. You might get bored by what the law does or doesn't do, but if you have bad theology, you end up believing false doctrine. And if you have false doctrine, you end up believing false gospels. That according to scripture, the law is our jailer. And if the law is our jailer, then the father is our warden slash judge, depending on, you know, if we're in the courtroom or not. And if the father is our warden slash judge, then we are the prisoners. And that means that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is our lawyer who is born under the law in the jail cell to provide a way out for us. The way out of the cell is not through religion, church. It's through redemption. It's not our do or our don't that will get us out of the cell. It's his done that gets us out of the cell. We don't try to cut the, the bars of religiosity. He opens the door for us and we walk out and we are transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. That's why theology matters. Because we end up giving more credit to Satan than we do our savior. And so the first thing that the law does in the life of a believer is the law is our jailer. The, the second thing, according to Paul, that the law does is the law is our tutor. The law is our tutor. Now, where do we see that? Look what it says in verses 24 through 26. Paul writes, so then the law was our guardian. Everyone say guardian. Until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, the, the word here for guardian it, 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 it is a picture of a tutor. So let me explain this. This is what the Greek word there, guardian, means. It means someone who guides, someone who directs, someone who teaches, and someone who disciplines. Now, in these days, here's what wealthy families would do. Wealthy families, they were pretty lazy, I guess, back then. And so what they would do is they would hire servants to come live in their house. And these servants would essentially raise their kids for them. From, from birth to adulthood, these servants would live in a wealthy family's home or live on their property, on their estate, and they would raise their kids for them. And so this person, this tutor, this guardian, uh, or some translations call it schoolmaster, which I don't know if I necessarily agree with because they were literally not just there at school, but they were there every waking hour of this child's life. They would wake them up in the morning. They would take them to school. They would bring them back. In some ways, they served almost like security because if they were wealthy, they had to protect the child. But this guardian, this tutor was well within their rights to essentially play the role of parents in the life of this child. And so they taught them all their manners and they were able and they were allowed to discipline them. So they would pull their, yank their ear and they would pinch them and they would slap them and they would uh, uh, yell at them. It was like they were the parent of this child. And the whole point of this guardian, the whole point of this tutor was to prepare the child for adulthood. And what commentators say is that certain tutors were kind and, and really nice and other, others were mean and bitter and weren't the nicest. But that's what the role of a tutor was. That's what the role of a guardian was. But here's the thing about a guardian. Their role 
was temporary. The tutor's role was temporary. Why? Because once the child reached adulthood, they were no longer under the authority. They were no longer under the jurisdiction of this tutor. Now, here's why this encourages me, okay? The reason why that encourages me is because what commentators say is that Paul here is referring to two things. He's referring to the individual believer's life, but he's also talking about Israel, the, the overall history of Israel. So here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God gave the law and the law was given as a tutor for the people of God until Jesus showed up. So in the book of Exodus, when God gave the law to his people, the law became the tutor of Israel. It became the guardian of Israel. And think about what this means. The law didn't just come to reveal. We said that uh, uh, a few weeks ago, that the law is a mirror that reveals our sin. But the law also came to not just reveal our sin, but to restrict our sin. The law couldn't remove our sin, but it did play a role in restricting our sin. And that's why Israel was different from all the other people groups, because the law came and showed them the character of God, showed them the standards of God. And so as a result, even though Israel ended up rebelling numerous times, it could have been way worse if they did not have the law. The law showed up as a tutor. The law showed up to teach them and to discipline them and to instruct them. That's what the law came to do. And so what Paul says is that in the overall redemptive history of God, the redemptive story of God, the law was introduced and the law was introduced for the purpose of tutoring, preparing, teaching, equipping, disciplining the people of God. So from Exodus all the way to Matthew, when Jesus shows up on the scene, the law played the role of preparing the people of God for the son of God. Does that make sense? That's what's the Bible says is happening at the corporate level, but at the individual level, that is the role that the law plays in our lives as well. The law shows up as our tutor and it teaches us and it disciplines us, right? It, it prepares us. And if the law is properly used, the law leads us and prepares us for the Lord. That is what Paul says that the law of God does. But again, and this is important, the law, though, was only temporary. It was never meant to be the permanent plan. It was only temporary. So, so here is something that stood out to me, and not a lot of commentators made this connection, but for me, it was really helpful. More than one scholar that I looked at said that because of the role that these tutors played in the life of these children, the children ended up becoming closer to the tutors when they were older than they, their very own parents, right? And so even though, get this, those children had every right to never talk to that tutor again because they were no longer under its tutelage, they were no longer under their authority, scholars say that they became friends with a lot of them. They became lifelong friends. They didn't have to be in relationship anymore, but they chose to be because of the role that the tutor played. And what I love about that is that I think it actually shines light on our relationship with the law now. The law is not bad. The law is good. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So, so what does that mean? What that means is, is as believers, the law was our mirror. The law was our, uh, we talked about it, was our jailer. The law was our tutor. And when we come to Christ, yes, we are no longer under the power of the law. We are no longer under the, the, the jurisdiction of the law. But, but what happens is, we talked about this a little bit last week, the law now becomes the guardrails, if you will, 
of the Christian life. It becomes the, the, rumble, the rumble strips on the side of the expressway. That, that as believers, we are called to enter the narrow gate, to walk the narrow road, right? Paul says in Galatians 2 that, that, that we are to walk in, in, on the path, uh, ortho perdeo, a straight path on the path of the gospel. And what the law does is when we are forgetting the gospel, right? When we are falling back into religiosity, when we are falling back into idolatry, when we are falling back into self-sufficiency, the, 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 our car starts right, hitting the rumble strips, we start hitting the guardrail and we're like, whoa, we, I must be veering off somewhere. There, 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 there must be an area here where I'm forgetting the gospel. And here's what the law does. When you hit the rumble strip, when you hit the guardrail, the law then, if used properly, is your mirror and you realize, oh, I'm trying to save myself. I can't save myself. So I got to get back on the road of the gospel. Does that make sense? So the law, when properly used, becomes our friend because it points us back to our Savior. Then the third thing that Paul says the law does is the law is not just our jailer, the law is not just our tutor, but Paul says that the law is our manager. He's our manager. It's our manager. And, and, and here's what he says in verses one through three of the text of, of, verse, of chapter four. Here's where we see the law is our manager. It says, I mean, he says, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so the third role that the law plays in the life of a believer is the law is our manager. Now, now what does it mean when the law says, when, when Paul says that the law is our manager? Well, the manager played a different role than the tutor. And in some cases, the tutor and the manager were the same person. But in other cases, they were two different people. And here's what the manager would do. The manager, essentially, again, only in a wealthy home, only wealthy people had the money to do this, but what a manager would do is it was a servant that lived in the household, and they would manage and administer over all the owner's assets and properties. They were the financial advisor, if you will, right? They were the money manager. They were the administrator. They would handle as a steward all of the assets and all of the resources and all of the property. That was their role. And so what the manager would do is, and what commentators say is that in this context, there's a good chance that there's not enough, let me put this, there's not enough historical information on the role of a manager than there is on the role of a tutor. But here's what we do know. There's a good chance that Paul here is talking about a scenario when the father of the household has already passed and so there's a manager who literally has to manage and steward the money and the property and the estate and the resources so that, get this, when the child comes of age, there's still money there. There are still assets there. There is still an inheritance to receive. And here's why commentators say that there's a good chance that the father had to be gone already. Because if you remember in the parable of the prodigal son, the only way that you can get your inheritance is if your father passes which is why what the son does is so disrespectful. When the son goes up to the father and says, I need you to give me my inheritance now, he's literally telling the father, you are dead to me, so why do, well, let's just make it official. Give me my money and I'm never coming back. So that's why they're saying there's a good chance that in the illustration Paul's using here, the father's already gone, 
Because even if you came of age as a son, you wouldn't receive all the resources until your father passed away. But he says that the law is our guardian. The law is the administrator. That, that, the, that the, the, the word of God and the work of God, you look at all of salvific history, it's this beautiful, uh, uh, incredible, uh, uh, priceless revelation. And that the law stewarded that. He, they, they administered over that. It protected it so that when Jesus came, we would still have it. That is the role that the law played. Now, the thing is, and this is the thing that I would say jumps out at me when I think about specifically the role of manager. It says that when the time came, this child that essentially was just a glorified slave, they had no rights, right? They had no inheritance yet. This child literally in a moment became rich. In a moment, they were living in, 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 their identity changed overnight. They went from being essentially a slave in the home to being a son, to having the full rights of adoption. And the reason why that stands out to me is because earlier in verse 23, Paul says uh, that we were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And the way that, that word there in 23 revealed means to uncover something. It means to disclose something that was already true. And so what I love about that is that we don't uh, uh, earn this gift. We don't work for it. We don't strive for it. It is not something that is obtained through religion. It is obtained through revelation. Amen. God just decides, I'm giving it to you. And there's nothing that we do. And so think about what this means in light of these three roles of the law, right? Jailer, tutor, manager. What this means then is that the Old Testament prepares us for the gospel. The four gospel writers present the gospel. And then from Acts to Revelation, we are taught how to practice the gospel. That's how the whole Bible works. The Old Testament prepares, the four gospels present, and then from, Revelation to, to, from Acts to Revelation, we are told how to practice the gospel. But what I need you to see is that it was always the gospel. The Bible was never at any point about the law. The Bible was at never at any point about religion. It was always redemption. It was always not our performance, but God's promise. It's the only plan that God has ever had. And so the law plays a major role in that process. Now, uh, something that stands out to me is that Paul says, and I don't wanna to spend too much time on this, but I think it's, it's important to mention. Paul says that before the law, or before Christ showed up, he said that we were enslaved to elemental principles. That, that our condition, apart from Christ, is that before Christ showed up, we were enslaved, he says, to elemental principles. The word there, enslaved, means to be under the control of something, to be under the power of something, to be in bondage to something, right? But what are we in bondage to? When Paul talks about the elemental principles, the word there, elemental, means basic. It means the rudimentary, the ABCs. He says that religion, in comparison to redemption, is basic. Religion is elemental. Religion is rudimentary. So get this. Paul says that if you have experienced, uh, 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 if you have experienced the grace of God, if you have experienced redemption, get this, when you go back to religion, Paul says it's like you having a PhD and going back to the ABCs. 
It's like you are in adulthood and you're going back to childhood. That that religion is funny because when there's so many people that are religious who think they're so sophisticated. Religion is just the, it's the way. No, Paul says religion is basic. Religion is worldly. Religion is the default setting of every single person. And, and I think one of the things that bothers me is that so, we're so quick when we, when we think of religion or religious activity, we only think of world religions. We, we think of Christianity and we think of Mormonism and we think of Islam and we think of Catholicism, fill in the blank, Judaism. But the, re, the reality is this, is this. Every other worldview that is not Christianity is religion. And that includes atheists, that includes agnostics, every other worldview that's not grace-based is law-based. So, so, so don't miss this. Because I think we turn on our religious antennas when we're seeing a, a, a rabbi or a priest or an imam. But we have to have our religious antennas when we're scrolling Instagram and the next health guru is telling you on the four ways to get fit. That's law. That if you follow my plan, if you climb my ladder, you will be found acceptable. The, the, the Tony Robbins nonsense, the, you got to just, you got to look inside and you got to believe and you got to achieve. That is law. And, and I think we forget the fact that anything other than Christianity is law. Whether it's Oprah or whether it's the Pope, it's law. And when we, when we don't, when we don't, when we, we forget that, we fall into this trap of thinking, oh, no, no, the only thing that's religious are the people who, you know, who are wearing the, 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 the collars and, 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 you know, doing stuff on Sunday. No, no, religion is the only thing the world offers. It's the only thing the world offers. And you know how you know? Because the world is just as judgmental as the church is. All this free love and, and everyone's accepted. Yeah, you're accepted until you disagree with me. And then I cancel you and you never get to talk publicly again. The world is just as pharisaical as the church is because all, the only thing you have, if you don't go the redemption route, is the religion route. And so going back to religion, whether it's the worldly form of religion or the, the, the church form of religion, Paul says is elemental, is basic, is rudimentary. That's what Paul's arguing here. And, and to me, the thing that stands out to me as I look at this is that Paul says, get this, he says that when you go back, this is in the next section, I'm getting ahead of myself, but in the next section, the very next passage, he says that before you came to Christ, he brings up the elemental principles again, but he says you were enslaved to things that by nature were not God. So, so get this, when you go back to religiosity or to religion, you're not just going back to religion, you're going back to a false God. And many times that false God is you. The, the, the greatest idol of our day is the idol of self-worship, is the idol of self-sufficiency. Paul says that when you go back to a lowercase g gospel, you're actually going back to a lowercase g God. And you're worshiping something that's smaller than Jesus. That, that one of the reasons why religion is so dangerous, we've been talking about this over the past few weeks, is not just because religion is blasphemous and religion is foolishness and religion is purposeless, but according to Paul, religion is also idolatrous. Then when I go back to religion, when I go back to do or don't, instead of leaning on the done, not only am I going back to religion, I am going back to a smaller God who cannot save me, who did not die for me, who cannot deliver me, who cannot redeem me. 
That is the danger of idolatry. That is the danger of religion. And what I love about what Paul says in that next passage is he says these lowercase g gods, these elemental principles, he says they are weak and they are worthless. The word they're weak means powerless. The word they're weak means helpless. And the word worthless means to be poor. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he talks about us being poor in spirit, which means bankrupt. So not only are we turning back to false gospels and we're turning back to false gods, but these gods are weak and they are worthless. They are helpless. They are bankrupt. They cannot save us. So whether you are turning to politics or you are turning to career or you are turning to a romantic relationship or you are turning to your education, whatever you are, your money, whatever you are putting your hope in, it is weak and worthless. It cannot carry the weight of your life and it cannot save your soul. So that is what the law does in the life of a believer. And so the question I want you to, here, here are the questions as we move on to the next point. Let me ask you this, these questions quickly for you to evaluate yourself right here now. Not the you from two weeks ago, not the you from two weeks from now, but right now in this season. Here's what I want you to ask yourself. How am I viewing the law of God in this season? What role is the law of God playing in my life today, right now? When you view the law, are you seeing the law as doable or done? In light of what Jesus says about him giving you the law of Christ and him giving you his yoke, when you think about the obedience to God, does it, does it bring, is it, is it a delight in this season or is it a duty? Does it feel heavy or does it feel light? Is it easy or is it hard? Are you approaching the law as a ladder in this season or as a mirror in this season? Are you viewing the law as the only plan God has or as a part of God's plan? And the last question is this, in this season, and this is where we have to be honest, are we Judaizing ourselves and going back to religion or are we gospelizing ourselves and leaning into redemption? And that's only the first point. <laughs> so if the law prepares, the next thing we see is that the gospel provides. The gospel provides. And I would argue that in light of this text, there are actually four things that the gospel provides for us. We're gonna work through each one of them. The, the first benefit, the first provision of the gospel, according to Paul, is unity, unity. Look what it says in verses 27 through 29. Paul writes, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Everyone say, put on. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Paul says here that the first thing that the gospel provides for us, the, the first benefit is that the gospel gives us unity, provides for us true unity, which is funny because the world loves unity. The world idolizes unity. Like th th that's their calling card. But what we see is that unity can never be the root of a movement. It is a fruit of a message. So, so Paul says that we become sons. How do we become sons? We become sons by faith 
in Christ. And that phrase, in Christ, is a very important phrase in Scripture because Paul actually uses that phrase to describe Christians more than the word Christians. He uses that phrase to describe Christians in Christ, that phrase in Christ, 172 times. Just Paul alone. He uses the phrase in Christ 172 times. And what Paul is arguing is that true unity, he says, is, is not found at, at, the, at, the, at the top of a ladder. He says true unity is found at the foot of a cross. That if you want true unity, you got to go to redemption and not to religion. Religion can't provide unity. Because all religion does is religion categorizes. Religion, we talked about this, religion is all about ladders. And every worldview outside of Christianity, whether it's the self-help guru or whether it's Tony Robbins or whether it's the imam, every other worldview tells you, if you want to be united, meet us at the top of our particular ladder. And if you get to the top of our ladder, we will accept you. You will be united to us. Christianity is the only one that says, no, no, you can't get to the top of the ladder. So Jesus came down and died on a cross. And at the foot of the cross is where true unity is found. Because if you go the ladder route, we've talked about this, ladders create levels and levels create labels. So, so if I'm climbing a ladder, whoever is above me is, is better than me, so I label them as better. And whoever's below me, I label them as worse. That's what ladders do. True unity is not found at the top of a ladder, church. True unity is found at the foot of a cross. That's what Paul's saying here. And that's a lesson that we all have to really wrestle with if we are going to experience the unity that we are called to have. In other words, what Paul's saying is, in order for us to have union with one another horizontally, we first must have union with him vertically. Because once we have union with him, God becomes our father, and then all of a sudden, you and I become brothers and sisters. That's where unity is found. And in this uh, 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 post-Christian third culture that we live in, that wants the kingdom of Christ without the king, they want unity without the foundation of it. They want to live the Christian lifestyle without the Christian Lord. So what Paul's saying here is, is, and I love this, he says that we have been baptized into Christ. We just got to celebrate a baptism. But Paul here is not referring to physical baptism. He's referring to the fact that when we are united with Christ, this is what we talked about during Easter. And this is a a very important concept that we need to process. That when we place our faith in Jesus, we are so united with Jesus, the Bible says, that literally his crucifixion becomes our crucifixion. We are crucified with him. We are buried with him. We are raised with him. We, are asc- we have ascended with him. We are seated with him, the Bible says. But all those things are true because we have been baptized into him. And, and the word there, baptized, means to be submerged into something, to be immersed into something, to be enveloped in something. That when we come to Christ, we are so united to him that we get swallowed up in him. So that when the, the, the father sees us, he no longer sees us, he sees Jesus. And it carries the idea of clothing, that we have been clothed with his righteousness. We have been clothed with his person. And that when we do that, that is where true unity is found. That's why Paul says, this is interesting. Paul says that we have put on Christ initially, but then he says, make sure to put on Christ continually. That even though I am in Christ positionally, I can forget that 
day to day. And so part of my job is to remind myself of the gospel, put on the armor of God, put on Christ practically. And when we do that, that's when we start to experience the unity that the Bible has. You see, but when Christians don't do that, here's what happens. And this breaks my heart. And honestly, it really gets me angry. When we as Christians don't preach the gospel to ourselves, we think the gospel is just for the outsider and not for the insider. When we are not putting on the armor of God, putting on Christ, here's what happens. You start to think that you're closer to people who vote like you than people who believe like you. There are people here today who feel closer to some political commentator who isn't even a Christian because he votes like you than the people who sit around you who are believers if they don't vote like you. And as a minority, this happens all the time. Being a part of the black community, being a part of the Hispanic community, there are times where if I'm not careful, I can feel closer to someone who looks like me than someone who believes like me. But the reason why we have to remind ourselves that true unity is only found at the cross, not in a political party, not in a color, the color of our skin, not in sexual preference, but only in Christ, that's where true unity is found. Under no circumstances should I ever feel closer to someone who votes like me than to someone who believes like me. Because we are part of a family church. But because believers have gospel amnesia and they don't put on Christ, we allow the world to inform our identity more than the Bible. And so we settle for lesser identities. And so the church of Christ is divided over political lines and racial lines and socioeconomic lines. And what are we doing? The ultimate, the, the, the gospel, and I love that it says that we have been submerged with him, that we have, been, we have put on his robes of righteousness. We are in Christ. We have been submerged into Christ. Because what that means is, is that our ultimate identity doesn't come from our culture or from our class or from our culture or from our, cat, or from our color or from our categories. Our, our, our ultimate identity comes not from any of those things, but it comes from Christ. And here's what's beautiful. It, it, when Paul says this, it doesn't mean that all of us just become, you know, copies of each other. He's not talking about uniformity. He's talking about unity. It's like, a, like an orchestra or like a symphony coming together. We all play different roles, but we're singing the same song. That's why I love that at our church, there, there, there are black people and there are white people and there are Hispanic people and there are Asian people and there's Indian people and there's old people and there's young people. And there's poor people and there's wealthy people. You know why? Because we don't emphasize any of those things. If, if you make that the goal, you end up killing it. The goal is not diversity. The goal is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's beautiful is that if we are clothed in Christ, don't miss this, because again, we get so focused in on one passage that we, we miss out on what the Bible says overall. If we are truly clothed with Christ, then will Christ is clothing us? Because we have clothes. I'm wearing clothes right now. You could be, you could be here as a believer, as a non-believer and be actually physically clothed. But the Bible's not talking about that type of clothing. It's talking about the fact that ever since Genesis 3, we have been spiritually naked. There's nakedness. There is guilt. There is shame. Christ came to deal with that nakedness. That when I place my faith in Jesus, I am covered. It says that when, Genesis, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, God had to provide a, a sacrifice, right? But, but that was only a temporary sacrifice. Jesus came to be the permanent sacrifice who covered us. He covered our nakedness. He covered our shame. 
He covered our guilt. And when we believe that, and when we preach that to, to ourselves and to each other, that is where true unity is found. All these other things. It's not that I'm not a minority. It's not that I, uh, I, I, I'm not a father or a husband. It's not that those things are not true. Those things describe me, but only Christ can define me. Because the Bible says that there is one faith, there is one body, there is one Lord, and there is one gospel. The next benefit that we see is not only do we get the benefit of unity, but we also, according to Paul, get the benefit of liberty. Liberty. Look what Paul says in verses four and five. He says, but when the fullness, everyone say fullness, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the fourth benefit according to, sorry, the second benefit according to Paul is that we have been given gospel liberty. We have been given gospel fullness. And what I love about what Paul says here in verses four, uh, uh, this liberty, this freedom that we've been given in Christ is that Paul says that it was at the fullness of time. Don't miss that. It was at the fullness of time. The, The word there, fullness, literally means at the completion of time, at the expiration of time. In other words, what what, what Paul is saying is that the coming of Jesus wasn't an accident. It was an appointment. That Mount Sinai was always meant to point to Mount Calvary. And that when Jesus Christ showed up, the role of the law was done. The, The law did what it needed to do because the law's job was to prepare us for the Lord. But that Jesus showed up and it was in God's time. Here's something that really convicted me this week. I don't know about you, but one of my temptations as as I've been walking with Jesus for almost 20 years now is that I don't necessarily have a problem. It's pretty easy for me sometimes to admit, not all the time, but most of the time, that my salvation is in God, that God is a saving God. But something that I struggle with often with is that God is a sovereign God. Not only is our God a saving God, he is a sovereign God. What, the word sovereign has to do with his providence. It has to do with his plan. That, that sometimes it's easy for me, to, for me to admit that God can save me, but it is hard to admit that God is sovereign over me. That, that when you look at this text, God was in control from the beginning, church. It says that we talked about this. Ephesians 1, the Trinity came together and they made a covenant within themselves that they were going to save a humanity that didn't even exist yet. And God has been carrying out that plan. He knew when to bring the law. He knew when to send the Lord. He knows when Jesus is going to come back. I don't know why so many of us spend so much time trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future. Let's focus on what's in front of us. Go evangelize. Go make a disciple. Go read your Bible. What are we doing here? God's sovereign. He knows. Jesus says, don't worry about the time or the dates. Do what I told you to do. And so the reason why that encourages me is because if God is truly sovereign, if our God was sovereign over every single step, every single face of the process in human history, how can we doubt him when it comes to our kids? How can we doubt him? So get this, if God is sovereign over salvation, that means he is sovereign over your singleness. He is sovereign over your suffering. He is sovereign over your marriage. He is sovereign over your cancer. He's sovereign, church. 
And man, it's so easy for me to admit that he's the one that saves, but it's so hard in my control idol to let go of control because I want to create my plan. I want to do my will, but he's sovereign. Whatever season you're in, good, bad, mountaintop, valley, I promise you he is sovereign over it. Which again is something we give Satan credit for. Oh, I'm suffering because Satan's coming after me. No, no, God is sovereign over your suffering. It would, dis- it would discourage me to no end if I thought that every time I had a bad day, it was because Satan got me and God had abandoned me. He hasn't abandoned you. He's the one that's taken you through the valley of the shadow of death. But if you're in Christ, get this, if you're in Christ, it's only a shadow. Jesus took the substance so that we could get the shadow. Come on. Come on. Come on. Sovereign God. Not just a saving God, but a sovereign God. And he came to give us liberty, church. It says that he was sent. So that has to do with his deity. If Jesus was sent, it means that he always existed. Right? That's his deity. He was sent. But then we are told that he was born of a woman, which has to do with his humanity. So if sent has to do with his deity then being born of a woman has to do with his humanity. Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. But then it says that he was born under the law. Jesus was born into the captivity that all of us were in. He wasn't a sinner like us, but he was born under the law. He stepped into the jail cell with us and obeyed all the precepts and took the penalty so that we might have a way out. And then it says that he did it in order to redeem us. And, and that is a, a, a term that was used in the marketplace. The word redeem in scripture means to buy something back, to, to, to return something to its owner, to make a payment. So in those days, if you were a slave, someone can show up at the slave market and they can either, they can pay, redeem you, and for one of two purposes, they would either redeem you to make you their slave or they would redeem you to set you free. Paul says that Christ, one of his jobs, one of the things that he came to do is he came to redeem us so that we might be set free. And here's what's beautiful about that. It says that the father was the one who sent them. And then Jesus says earlier, we, Paul said earlier that Jesus gave himself. So the father sends him and the son allowed himself to be sent. So it wasn't the father having to convince the son or the son having to convince the, uh, the father. They both willingly came together in order to redeem you and me. And Jesus shows up and he says that because of the freedom that he came to give, he stands up at the synagogue in Luke and he says he came to preach freedom to the captives. To set the prisoners free. He says in John chapter 8 that he who, he, who the son sets free is free indeed. Not kind of free, fully free. Even Galatians uh, uh, chapter five, Paul gets into the idea that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. He says it twice. It is for freedom that Christ did what? Set us free. He came to redeem us, church. So not only in the gospel are we given unity and not only in the gospel are we given liberty, but the third benefit of the gospel is that we are given a new identity. We are given identity. Look what Paul says in verse five. He says, to redeem those who were born, who were under the law, so we might receive adoption. Everyone say adoption. Adoption as sons. So here's what's beautiful, right? If the fact that we got unity wasn't good enough, 
If the fact that we got liberty wasn't good enough, he shows up and gives us identity. That, 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 don't miss this. He didn't just show up to redeem us. He showed up to adopt us. That after he bought us out of the slave market, he brought us into the father's house. That's what the whole story of Hosea is about. In the, in the story of Hosea, God tells Hosea, he's one of his prophets. He says, I want you to marry a prostitute named Gomer. She's going to cheat on you repeatedly. And the reason why I want you to marry her is so that your life is an illustration of what Israel does to me. Israel is a prostitute that cheats on me all the time. So I want your marriage to be a, literally a physical manifestation of what they're doing to me spiritually. And there's a story in, in the book of Hosea where she leaves him again. She cheats on him again. She gets caught up into slavery. And God tells Hosea, I want you to go to the slave market and I want you to buy your wife back. I want you to redeem your wife. I want you to pay the payment. So Hosea, he goes as the faithful husband and he, he pays for his wife again. He buys her back. That's the gospel. We are the prostitute. On the slave market, selling ourselves to any lowercase g God, to any lowercase g gospel, and then God shows up and he buys us back. Not from Satan. He buys us back from under the law. Church, and, and what I love about this, here's what's, because again, this, this is where the, feminism is, is, is a real thing, okay? And so, so certain translations, depending on what Bible you're using, they'll be like, uh, we have been adopted to the rights of sonship and daughtership, right? Just because you don't, you don't, you don't want to offend anybody, right? But here's why the Bible says sonship. And this is why, again, we should know history better, okay? Because in those days, the only people that can actually be adopted were men. Women were not even second class. Women were considered trash in that day. Okay, so, so, so don't miss this. And here's another thing. I, I, when I was at Moody, I had a professor at Moody Bible Institute. I had a professor, his name was Dr. Trevor Burke. And he was my Greek professor. I had him for three semesters in Greek and that wasn't, wasn't fun. But <laughs> he wrote a book literally a several hundred page book just on the doctrine of adoption. And here's what he said to us one time in our class. He said this, he said, we have a American view of what adoption is, a Western view. When we think of adoption, you have parents who are looking to, to bring in a child and they go to an orphanage and they find a, a cute kid and they, they bring them home. He said, but in those days, you never adopted a child. You only ever adopted another adult. And the Greek word for adoption literally means there to place an adult son. That's what it means in Greek, to place an adult son. So here's what would happen. If a wealthy landowner who had a lot of resources to give away didn't have someone to give it to, he would go and find just a guy and he would adopt him. And immediately upon adoption, that person would become his heir. And if he had any kids at all, it would be as if that person had always been his son. Think about how crazy that is. And actually, there's an example of that in history. It says that Julius Caesar, when he was uh, the, the, the Roman emperor, he didn't have anyone to give his empire to. And so he adopted his great uncle, Octa his great uh, nephew, Octavius. And Octavius became the next emperor because he had adopted him as an adult. And so what do I, why do I say that? 
Because when the Bible says that we have been granted adoption as sons, we have been given the rights of sonship, the reason why we can't uh, try to feminize that and add women is because what that means is now even women in Christ have been given all the privileges, all the benefits. In a culture where women were treated as less than, now in Christ, it it can't be daughtership because there was no daughtership back then. Every single one of us, men and women, we're treated the same at the foot of the cross. And we are given the privileges of adoption. We are all treated as sons. That's beautiful. That's why we got to be careful with these modern translations where we're trying not to offend people. That, that, that literally Jesus redeemed us in order to adopt us. We talked about this when it came to justification. It's not like he just took us off of death row. He took us off of death row and then he brought us to the White House to give us the purple heart. We were redeemed so that we might be adopted. And what's beautiful is in Ephesians chapter one, when it says that God predestined us, and again, some of you don't like that, but it just, just it, that's your fault if you don't wanna read the Bible, that's fine. But, 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 but when, when it says that God predestined us, it says that he predestined us, get this, specifically for adoption. That before the foundations of the earth, God had already adopted us. We didn't even exist yet. Even in the in Revelation, Pastor Drew sent this to me uh, 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 last week because I kept bringing up the book of life. He said, you know that in Revelation it says that the names that are written in the book of life were written before the foundations of the earth? Some of y'all don't like that verse though. But that our adoption and our names, we've been pre-adopted and the name was pre-written. We didn't even exist yet. We hadn't obeyed or disobeyed. We hadn't served, we haven't given, we hadn't done anything because we were saved solely by grace, church. And what's beautiful is that here's what the Bible says. It says that son of God, right? We are sons of God. The only other, other time that Paul uses that Greek construction is when he's talking about Jesus. So if you look at it in the Greek, when he talks about Jesus being the son of God and then he talks about us being sons of God, it's literally the same exact Greek phrase, but one's plural and one singular. So here's what this means according to commentators. What it means is, is that in Christ, we are treated like an only child. So it's not like there's Jesus and all his siblings, but the way that is written in Greek, it means that when we are brought into Christ, when we are united to Christ, when we are crucified with Christ, when we are buried with Christ, when we are raised with Christ, we are so united, we are so submerged, we are so enveloped in him that it's as if we were the only child. Come on, man. And this is why in many ways we think, oh, we got to get back to, it was Adam, Adam and Eve had it best. No, Adam and Eve didn't have it best because Adam didn't know what, Adam and Eve never knew what forgiveness was. The second garden is going to be so much better than the first garden. Because in the second garden, we're going to know what resurrection is. We're going to know what forgiveness is. We're going to know what grace is. We're going to know what mercy is. And we're going to know what sonship is. Adam was never that close to God. That we are so united with Jesus that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. Only the gospel can do that, church. And then the last benefit is this. Not only have we been given unity, not only have we been given liberty, not only have we been given identity, but the last benefit is we've been given intimacy. And look what it says in verses six and seven. In six and seven, 
Paul writes, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So get this. The last benefit is that we have been given intimacy, that the Holy Spirit not only plays a role in our creation and not only plays a role in our salvation, but he plays a role in our sanctification because the Holy Spirit is the sign and the pledge and the seal of the salvation we will receive one day. That the Holy Spirit, he enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit takes the objective realities of the gospel and makes some subjective experiences in our hearts. The Holy Spirit preaches, he, Jesus says, when I'm going to send you an advocate, I'm going to send you a helper, and when the helper comes, he's going to teach you my truth, my words. The Holy Spirit is the one who preaches the gospel to us. And it says that we get to call him Abba Father. Still today in Israel, right now, little kids call their dad Abba. This isn't like some old word. No, no. Today, right now, in Hebrew, in Israel, Abba is this term of a familial endearment and intimacy. Little kids call their dads Abba right now. And that he says that part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to take the facts of the Gospels and allow us to experience those feelings at the heart level. And I love that it says that he, he cries out. Here's what's beautiful about that church. That when we cry out, Abba, Father, that same Greek word is used to describe Jesus on the cross. And on the cross, it says that Jesus cried out and the Father didn't answer. So in his lowest moment, Jesus cried out and the Father didn't answer. So that in our lowest moment, when we cry out, the Father could answer. And then the word Abba, Father, there's only one place where Jesus uses the phrase Abba Father. Only one place. And when I, I kept seeing it in different commentators, Mark 14, Mark 14. I'm like, all right, Mark 14. But by the grace of God, I checked what Mark 14 was. It's when he's in the garden asking the father to take the cup away from him. He says, Abba Father. Not my will, but your will. That's the one place where Jesus, so, so in the garden, Jesus shows his intimacy with the Father. And you know that from the garden is when the punishment started because when he's on the cross, it's the only time he doesn't call him Father. He says on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father forsook Jesus that one time so that he might be faithful to us every other time. So as we conclude, let me say this. According to this passage, the law imprisoned us, guided us, managed us, and prepared us until the fullness of time. And at the fullness of time, the gospel showed up and the gospel gave us unity, liberty, identity, and intimacy. Amen. Good morning, church at home, family. I hope y'all are having a great day so far. And man, <laughs> what a message. Oh, yeah. That, that, that was a lot. But uh, my name is Lynn. Um, I'm joined with my beautiful wife, Sarah. <laughs> um, Danielle is over there moderating. Shout out to Danielle. I mean, we do have a QR code. Um, I think it's somewhere above my head, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. So click on that. Um, 
But uh, what we want to do this morning, we really want to dive back into this message. Um, so we're going to start off by reading Galatians three twenty three through 4 and 7, Sarah, if you don't mind. <laughs> yes. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law and imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may or in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Amen. So, Lynn, the first question for the day mm-hmm. Um what is something new that God taught you in the message today? Did this new truth comfort, convict, or confront you, and why? Uh, we, we talked about it a little bit. It definitely convicted me, mm-hmm. um, and it convicted me more so because I, instead of, like Will said, use the law as guardrails or, or the bumpers on the side of the road, I t- I so tend to use it as something I have to follow, I have to obey, I have to do, instead of reminding myself of the gospel and so that's why like um this past week it's been such a struggle for me because i don't use the guardrails as the law and follow the gospel i sometimes follow the law and i tend to be like let me make sure i'm somewhere in the gospel alone that way Mm -hmm. but it's being reminded of the gospel constantly reminding myself that that it is christ who has finished the work it's christ who has done it all and it's not myself that i go back to now putting the law in this proper place instead of putting the law as something that i have to achieve i have to obey or i have to do but christ has already done it and i get to live from that freedom and from that and so it def- it comforted me and it did uh confront mm-hmm. me definitely yeah but more so it convicted me today and yeah. what about you um so i think for me uh it confronted me and then from the confrontation then it comforted me mm-hmm. so for me i've kind of struggled always with understanding um what was the purpose of the old testament Mm -hmm. and the past few weeks will has really like honed in on that and that's been really good to understand um that this time before christ um the law was given to them to reflect their sin um and so he talked about that and you mentioned it a little bit so how the law puts us in temporary bondage um but it's because it's just revealing to us what we already are. It's not that the law is um, bringing something new upon us. It's just saying, Hey, this is your nature and I'm revealing this to you. Um, And something good that he had said also was um, that the law was given as a tutor for Israel until Jesus came. Mm -hmm. So the law revealed and then through knowing of their sins and then the law as a um, way to restrict that sin as well. Um, and so 
that was good for me because I understood and saw more that that was the intent of that. And then it comforted me in seeing the full um, unified purpose of, you know, God's plan. And the phrase that stuck out to me with understanding that was um, something that I've, you know, recited to you that we were saved from God, by God, for God. So we were saved from the Father, by Christ, um, for furthering his kingdom through the spirit. Yeah. Amen. Amen. That's a good one. I like that. Uh, So our next question is, how does Paul use the metaphor of adoption in Galatians 4, 1 through 7 to explain the believer's relationship with God? Mm. Yeah. So again, I'm glad that we um, have a shepherd, under shepherd that teaches to us through explaining, you know, what's the actual original context of these words. Um, Because when he you know, talked about how we have a very westernized definition of adoption. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I immediately thought of is adoption of a child um, and somebody just of that age group. But when he said that adoption was um, actually in this context and during this time was adoption of a man of the same age, um, I thought, well, you know, why are you adopting a grown man? Like, what do they need? They can provide for themselves. Yeah. Um, and then he talked about, in the context of that, why they would adopt a man, was that somebody was wealthy and owned land, and then they didn't have anybody to give that inheritance to. You know, you wanted to provide an, inher- an inheritance to somebody. And so they adopted someone in to be able to pass that down. Um, and just understanding, you know, especially as Gentiles, like, it was given to the Jew first and then the Greeks, right? Then to mm-hmm. the Gentile. Gentile. So we're a part of the group that was grafted in even more. Um, so yeah. we're even more undeserving of this. And then even at the foundational level, foundational level, um, as sinners at most, like we don't deserve to share in anything of God's wealth um, because we are sinful. But through Christ, God has allowed to... Um, let us be adopted and, and share in that inheritance with Christ. Amen. So you read the next one. Okay. <laughs> and then the last question is, um, we learned that the gospel provides believers with four significant benefits. Um, those four are unity, liberty, identity, and intimacy. Which one stood out to you the most and why? Uh, mine is definitely one. I'm leaning towards identity. Um, quickly follow behind unity mm-hmm. um, It's definitely identity Because um, as a person That struggles with identity so much Finding out that We have our identity in Christ Is, is such a beautiful thing You know we, we so quickly Especially nowadays With everything that's happening it's, it's a lot of people struggling with who they are And who they belong to And what group do I pair myself with And along comes Christ And gives us an identity it doesn't just like say, okay, you 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 figured out along like this who I this is who he is, mm-hmm. and when we're adopted into him, this is who we become. Like we don't just gain his last name, like you said, the the modernized definition where it's just gaining your last name, but we gain all that Christ has, and this is why unity is right behind it because when we gain all that he has in his identity, we are. It's as if we're dead with him we've been buried with him now we're raised with him and then we're one day glorified with him and and it's such a beautiful picture of our our unity our identity our intimacy our li- all of like found in christ that 
we don't have to go looking. Um, we I pray Galatians 2.20 every day where it's I'm crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith through the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yeah. And so as I go, my purpose and how I move and what I do, where how I say to the people that they treat me wrong and, and, and the pyro and be tripping. Like, <laughs> I, I don't respond to them my old way. I respond to them in Christ and it, it changes everything. And it, it's such a beautiful picture knowing that my identity is not found in what I do. It's been found in who has done everything for me already. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to earn that identity. I, I'm adopted into that identity. But what's your response? What's your response? <laughs> So uh, you talked about identity, and I will say the other three for me especially. Um, so in, in the order that I think like process-wise, because I, I love steps to things, and I think like in the way that this was reflected and how I took it in, it's really um, one then the next and the other. Mm -hmm. So it's liberty, then intimacy, then unity to me. So liberty, um, Will talked about it, and when he talked about liberty, I was like, Okay, how can it be liberty? Because I'm thinking back to like government class in high school, you know, like, wh what do you mean by liberty? Yeah, and to see that it's fullness, um, the gospel provides us fullness, and it's not through anything that we've done, mm -hmm. you know, you talked about that with identity, it's through what Christ has done, yeah. um, because Jesus is 100% God and he's 100% man, and he was born of a woman into the world around him that's filled with sin and lived a life without sin mm -hmm. to die for sinful people and to bear sin itself. Um, and, and that, that, that is fulfillment through him. And so we're given that fulfillment from something we could not earn. Yeah. You know, we learned that through the law. We could not earn it. Humans could not earn it. And so Christ came to fulfill all those things um, and now we receive that fullness just by believing in Him. Yes. Um, and then from that, we're giving we're given intimacy with God. So again, going back to the Old Testament, um, a couple of Easter's ago, Will talked about Jesus in mirror to the tabernacle mm -hmm. and understanding how Jesus is like every element that the tabernacle was set up like. Um, and just for Danielle's uh, pleasure, I will reiterate <laughs> my statement about my old youth group song. My old youth group song growing up, I was probably in middle school at this point. So I had just professed belief in Christ probably three years before that because I got saved when I was 10. Mm -hmm. um, and so we would sing this song in youth group and I would just feel this feeling. And now as I'm, as I'm an adult and I understand this more, I feel like it's really like the spirit placed within me crying out back to God. Um, so the song says, take me into the Holy of Holies, take me in by the blood of the Lamb. And when we think about that picture in Old Testament, the Israelites could not go past the brazen altar. Mm -hmm. um, they had to give their sacrifice and then the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and wear a rope and wear the bell on him. So if that, if he was blemished still, you know, and he died, you heard the bell ring and you yanked him out. But we, at, through belief in Christ, are allowed to go into the Holy of Holies still mm -hmm. as sinful people we're not struck down. We're not killed, mm -hmm. but we're allowed to be that close to a holy God that we should not be even remotely near. Yeah. Um, and so to have that intimacy is just mind blowing because I think about it almost every day, multiple times a day. In fact, I'm so sinful, you know, God, why? But um, it, 
it's a blessing that God has allowed me to see, mm -hmm. to have this revealed to me that my my scales are taken off my eyes that I've been predestined to even, you know, understand this because some people don't understand it. And then unity, um, something that I thought about when we were just talking earlier, um, glorification, when we think about heaven, uh, it's every tribe, every tongue, every nation, mm -hmm. not just me, not just you, not just Danielle, not just other people here, but all throughout the world, it's all the church that we're going to be unified in heaven, glorifying one God. Yeah. So... Yeah, mm, that's, that's beautiful. Uh, I want y'all to really like hone in on this conversation. Um, and with those that are around you, if you don't have anybody around you, call a friend, um, bring them into the circle. Uh, come be with us. Come join us on Sundays, um, yeah. whether it's at this campus, whether it's at our call you build location. Um, we really pray that you have gotten something good from this conversation um if you want to find more information to get involved uh go to missionchurchmemphis.com slash ministries um, it, it's 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 just so much um we don't have all the time but we would love to talk to you guys one time whenever y'all come visit we'd love to see y'all um write danielle in the chat let her know hey we enjoyed the conversation and we have further questions. We'll reach somebody will reach out to you all. Mm -hmm. um, we pray that y'all have a blessed Sunday. We pray that y'all go forth in the name of the Lord and we'll see you again next, next week. Lord willing. Bye.